Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, this is the word of God, let us hear it. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech you, Odeus, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord alway. And again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of verse 9. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Ever since we did that study last week, which could be uh, the, the mark of uh, the beginning of a series on bridging the gap between hearing and doing, I've become sensitive to those verses in Scripture that support such a notion of bridging that gap, and we certainly find that here in verse 9, don't we? Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace shall be with you. So add this to the collection, I suppose, that we can be starting on being not hearers only, but doers of the word. That is not, however, the subject that I want to address this afternoon. In fact, what I want to focus on this afternoon has as much to do, has more to do actually with thinking than with doing. And if you look again with me at verse 8, we find what is perhaps a familiar verse to you all. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, Whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Emphasizing those last couple of words especially, think on these things. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. The author of Proverbs tells us, Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7, you've heard the saying, perhaps 
you are what you eat. Well, the same thing could be said for the Christian's thinking. You are what you think. No wonder then that the Christian's thought life is an issue that is constantly addressed by the Apostle Paul. It is in connection with our thinking that Paul writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So you see that that verse pertaining to our spiritual warfare also pertains to our minds to our thought lives. Add to that those familiar verses in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then in this epistle that we've just read from now, in Philippians, we find that in various places in this letter, Paul also places a strong emphasis on the mind. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus Chapter 2 and verse 5. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Chapter 2 and verse 3. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That in chapter 4 and verse 7, verse we just now read. Paul certainly knew the positive effects that spring from right thinking. He also knew that so much of a Christian's warfare is fought in the mind, and that many of the dangers a Christian faces in this world come through wrong or distorted thinking. The devil is devoted to luring a Christian into wrong thinking because he knows that wrong thinking stunts spiritual growth, robs the Christian of assurance, and wrong thinking leads to bondage and pride and an ineffective witness for Christ. Dr. Cairns used to make it a point of emphasis that the Christian's warfare is in the mind. That's where the battleground is, in the mind of the Christian. You could say then that in verse 8, where Paul now gives his final, finally, brethren, you have to love it when Paul utilizes that device. This isn't, uh, or this is actually the last time. He at other times gives us a finally, but now he actually means it. <laughs> Finally, brethren, he is in effect placing a stamp then or seal on all that he's already said. If the Philippians would devote themselves to constructive spiritual thinking, they would establish and maintain unity in the church. 
Yodius and Syntyche would get along, and the minds and hearts of the saints at Philippi would not be troubled by the animosity of the world toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what was true in Paul's day is no less true in ours. The Christian needs to be engaged in constructive and spiritual thinking. The trouble we face in our day and in our culture is that we find it uh, so tempting, so strongly tempting to be taken up in our minds with other things. There are some Christians, you know, that will devote all their mental energy toward planning on what it takes to get ahead in this world. If I can reach a certain benchmark, a certain income level, I'll be able to pay off everything I owe, provide a more comfortable life for myself and my family. We'll have nicer things that we'll be able to afford. We'll be able to do things that we really can't afford to do now. I'll be able to afford that car that I can only dream about now. And oh, of course, I'll be able also to give more to the church and to good Christian causes. Now, I'm not about to suggest this afternoon that there's anything wrong with getting ahead or making plans for the future. But what I would suggest is that when those things become the things that dominate your thinking, then you're not thinking right, and you're certainly not thinking the way Paul tells the Christian to think in verse 8. I can remember many years ago now, when I was a new Christian and young in the faith, I was recruited to attend one of those pyramid marketing schemes where you become a distributor of certain products. I don't even remember what the products were at the time. The idea was that uh, as you succeeded, not only in selling products, but in getting others to sell the products which they would buy from you, then you would exponentially increase your income beyond your wildest dreams. And the way they tried to motivate the people in this marketing scheme to work hard to recruit other sales reps was to get you thinking on all the things you'd be able to buy and all the things you'd be able to do. Basically, they would dangle the toys of the world before you and try to increase your appetite for all of the things that the world has to offer. Such thinking is not at all what the apostle has in mind when he says in verse 8, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, and whatsoever things are pure, and whatsoever things are lovely, and whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. But then there are other Christians who while they may not devote their mental energies toward thinking about the world's goods and the things they um, might afford if they only had a little more money, they instead devote much thinking to all that is wrong in the world. Our politicians are corrupt. 
Big corporations are nothing but greedy profit mongers. And wasn't the jury's verdict of today's big name criminal a travesty of justice? Or doesn't the news media abuse the practice of reporting the news by giving us propaganda for fueling racial tension? And 9-11 was a government conspiracy and we really didn't land on the moon, etc., etc. And here again, we want to do our best to stay informed. Nothing wrong with that. We want to be aware of the issues of the day that we might take the right kind of civic action when that action is called for. But here again, when these things dominate our thinking to the point that we can hardly think about anything else, then we go astray in our thinking and we end up reaping the rotten fruit of anger and bitterness and constant agitation and anxiety. Well, that's certainly not the kind of thinking that Paul calls for in our text. I suppose we could devote an entire study to listing ways that Christians are not supposed to think. That's not the issue, though, that the text addresses. The fact that there is so much wrong thinking among Christians establishes the need for our text to be rightly understood and applied. So what I want to consider today is what the text positively states. I like the way one preacher of old summarized the teaching of this verse when he entitled his sermon, The Transforming Power of Thought. I'd like to modify that theme a little bit this afternoon by turning it into a question, and the question is simply this. How can the Christian's life be transformed by his thinking? And in the moments that remain, I have my usual three answers to the question. I don't know that I'm going to try to cover all three points today. In fact, I might just cover the first one and leave the next two for next week. But consider with me, first of all, that the Christian's life is transformed by being engaged in thinking. Okay? Again, the words of the text. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, Think on these things. I've been describing ways in which a Christian shouldn't think. He shouldn't be dominated by worldly thinking, and he shouldn't be dominated by fearful thinking. There's something closely akin, however, to wrong thinking that is actually something just as bad, if not worse, and that is a Christian who isn't engaged in thinking at all. The thoughtless Christian, I suppose you could call him. And there are plenty of religions in the world that suppress thinking. Such religions prefer their adherents to be blind followers of whatever is dictated to them, 
And I think I could include the Roman Catholic Church in this category. I can remember reading Lorraine Bettner's book on Roman Catholicism, in which he pointed out that the Bible itself was on the Catholic index of forbidden books during the days of the Counter-Reformation. There were certain things, a list of books that you were not allowed to read by order of the Pope, by order of the Church, and the Bible was among them. Now, Bettner's been criticized along the way. I think his book uh, remains a, a classic to this day in dealing with Roman Catholicism. But he's been criticized for being over the top in his criticisms of Roman Catholicism. So I did some searching some while back to see if his account of the Bible being uh, listed on the Index of Forbidden Books was indeed valid. And the best I could do to invalidate his statement was to find one site that claimed that Bible reading was allowed in the laity, provided you had a license issued to you by proper church authorities. Imagine that, having to have a license to read the Bible. I can remember when I worked in the printing industry, downtown Indianapolis, having a discussion with a Roman Catholic there who piously told me he was actually boasting on this when he said to me that he would never read the Bible. It was against the policy of his church. I remember I told him rather sarcastically that pious ignorance is a feature of the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, you're supposed to read your Bible, but you're supposed to do more than read it. You're supposed to think on these things. Philippians 4 and verse 8 is a text that some preachers draw from in order to expound the practice of meditation. I can remember a time in the not-too-distant past when I would have heard that very word, meditation, and I would have regarded it as a, a negative word. Caution flags would arise in my mind at the mere mention of the name because that was a practice that was associated with the Eastern mystical religions, transcendental meditation. Well, in fact, a number of Puritans have written on the practice of scriptural meditation. In his book, Puritan Reform Spirituality, Dr. Beakey devotes a chapter to the Puritan practice of meditation. And some of the headings in that chapter include these, the definition and nature and kinds of meditation, the duty and necessity of meditation, the manner of meditation, the subjects for meditation, and the benefits to meditation, as well as the obstacles to meditation. Pretty thorough treatment that Dr. Beakey gives it, all coming from the Puritans who were very much engaged in the practice. Now, it's not my purpose this afternoon to elaborate on 
those various headings. That might be something for a future study. But let me just share with you what Scripture itself says on the subject. The Lord's word to Joshua in Joshua 1 and verse 8 is a word that we should all take to heart where we read, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do. And there's another verse, isn't it, we can add to the list of hearing and doing meditation with an aim to doing, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Psalm 1 contains a familiar statement pertaining to meditation. Speaking of the blessed man, verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. The word meditate occurs many times in the Psalms. Let me just leave you with one more reference. This one from the New Testament found in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 15. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all. And please take note that spiritual profiting springs from the practice of thinking or meditating on the word of God. And simply put, meditation is a form of thinking. When Paul says, think on these things, there's a sense in which he's calling for meditation. The word think in our text, however, is different from the common word for think. It's the word that in other places is translated by the word reckon. Boy, there's a word that you always want to Keep in mind, and your mind should always perk up a little bit when you come across it. How many times have you heard me cite Romans 6.11 as the essence of gospel obedience? Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The term meaning impute, count it to be so, count yourself to be dead to sin, count yourself to be alive to God, you are doing so not by entering into a realm of make-believe, but you are recognizing there is a basis for this kind of reckoning. You can count yourself to be dead to sin because you're joined to Christ, and Christ died once to sin. You can reckon, count yourself to be alive to God, not because you necessarily feel alive to God, but because Christ is alive to God and you are joined to him. So the word there speaks to us of more than just mental exercise. It includes that, but it also includes appropriation by faith. You are to think and you are to apply God's word. The Puritans had a word for that or a phrase for that when they spoke of improving the preacher's sermon. I would admonish you all when you hear sermons from this preacher to feel free to 
improve upon them. And by that, I don't mean that you simply view them with critical appraisal, though there may be times when that's necessary. But what the Puritans had in view was that you take and apply it to yourself on a personal level, improve upon it by drawing from it what you can apply from it personally to your own life and your own circumstances. So when you read your Bibles, you want to know what it says, you want to know what it means, and you want to know how it applies to you. This is to be the Christian's practice. His mind is to be actively engaged in his religion. He's not to be thoughtless. He's not to be a blind adherent to whatever is dictated to him by other men. I love the text in Acts chapter 17. I used to refer to this, Acts 17, 11. This was my student verse. All the while I was a student at Bob Jones University. The verse reads like this. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. I've referenced that text on occasion to stress the point that there isn't supposed to be any such thing as a spoon-fed Christian, not even when the Apostle Paul himself is holding the spoon, as is the case with those Christians at Berea. Those who heard Paul at Berea, they received what he said, but they searched the scriptures, whether those things were so. And for that practice, they are designated as being troublemakers in the church. Oh no, for that they are designated as being noble. This is a noble practice to receive the word and search the scriptures, test what you hear by the scriptures. I hope that as Christians then, that you are actively engaged in thinking. Not every Christian, you know, appreciates the privilege. I remember again from my college days, a student who was frustrated because he had heard two different views of a passage from two different Bible professors on the faculty there two different approaches or interpretations about a certain verse. I don't even remember what the verse was, but this student, I can remember him all flustered and saying, how am I supposed to know what it means if the teachers don't even agree? I remember saying to him, it's enough to drive you to the Bible, which is indeed what it ought to do. One of my professors, and this one really stands out in my mind as one who, ha who perhaps had the greatest impact on me, he constantly charged his students to go to the Word. He said, don't tell me what Dr. So-and-so says it means. You get into it. 
You read it. You contemplate it. You think about it. Meditate upon it. Study it carefully and prayerfully and compare it with the rest of the Bible until you know what it means. I so appreciate that professor's approach and I could say I, I could probably credit that professor for much of my views, even my views which would be in disagreement with his. As Christians, we are supposed to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are supposed to advance in our sanctification. We are to avoid being conformed to the world and are instead to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our religion is a thinking religion. And in order to accomplish these things, we must be actively engaged with our minds. We are to think on these things. Well, I think I will leave it with you this afternoon at that. We are to be thinkers, okay? I, I will take up this study again and, and uh, have two more points that I want to cover. I'll let you know what they are. You can be thinking on them in advance that a Christian's thinking is to be guided thinking and it's also to be guarded thinking. So we can look at that in a future study, but for now I will leave it at that. You can't have guided thinking or guarded thinking if you're not even engaged in thinking. So let me leave you with that point and admonish you to, as one professor once said to his classroom of students, make your brain sweat. We live in a day, don't we, where physical exercise is uh, so constantly emphasized. All the advertisements on TV about all the things you can take and all the um, equipment you can buy and the gyms you can join, all in the name of fitness for your bodies. Well, let me suggest to you, we need fitness in our minds and fitness in our minds shares something in common with fitness to our bodies and that is that the minds must be engaged in exercise in order for that fitness to happen. Oh, may the Lord help us then to be much engaged in spiritual thinking, exercising our minds in the contemplation of God's word. Let's close then in prayer. Oh, Lord, as we bow now in thy presence and bring this meeting to a close, we pray that we may indeed be transformed by the renewing of our minds, we pray, Lord, that we may be engaged in bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We pray, dear Lord, that thou wilt help us not to be thoughtless, but thoughtful. May we be much engaged in hearing and heeding the admonitions of, of thy word that do call upon us to meditate upon these things and to give ourselves wholly to them. Help us then, Lord, so to do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.